church. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. Um, of course, we have Bibles on every device we carry with us today. But uh, we want to make sure everybody has a copy of God's Word. We're going to be looking at Ruth 3 in just a little bit. Um, really excited about today. This is our last week, uh, hence the title, the rest of the story. There's two chapters left, but we're going to uh, cover the rest of Ruth's story today. I want to talk about the Bible, though, big picture. This is a big picture kind of sermon. We do these every once in a while. Um, this is one of those, uh, so maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. I don't know where that lands with you, but I, I hope it's good. Um, have you ever considered just how influential the Bible has been on our world? Probably not, because the Bible has always been in our world, and if you're a Christian and grown up in church like me, the Bible has always been part of your world, and it's just kind of like you just assume that, of course, it's made that big of an impact and, and difference on the world. But I, I don't want to overstate this, but I don't think I can. The Bible is so influential, and it has been so influential that even misquotes and things that wrongly, wrongfully represent it um, have been able to make tremendous impacts on the world, which maybe that should really make us think just how influential it is that someone can take something that it doesn't really say and still make a big splash with it. But there's just so much power in the words, in the teachings, and the ideas of this book. In the wrong hands or tilted the wrong way, that power can be spent in a less, intended, less than intended way. But for the most part, the Bible has changed culture and has transcended trends and been a force of influence in every generation, even when it was incomplete. Can you think about that? Just imagine that. The Bible's only been complete and canonized and in the form that we know it um, for about 1,800 years. Yet the Bible's been making an impact and influencing the world for a lot longer than that, before it was even complete with the New Testament, the Bible has been making such a big difference. Uh, part of why the enemy comes across so vindictive and so hateful in his attempts to silence the Word or combat the Word is because the norms of the Bible have such a weight and resiliency that undoing the influence, suspending the aura, upending the impact is almost a futile task. After all, the Bible tells us, God through Isaiah tells us this about God's word. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seeds to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that which I sent it. And you may not read it and we may not always obey it, but the Bible has had an impact because God sent it with a mission to accomplish, to purpose and succeed. Now, it, they'll never admit it, but, it, but this is so true. That the Bible, and of course Christianity as it's been a practice of the Bible, um, has ushered in more social and humanitarian reform and transformation for the good than any other source of, of influence at all. There would be no notion of gender equality without the Bible. There would be no appreciation and reverence for family without the Bible. There would be no abolition and fight against slavery without the Bible. There would, be, uh, there would be nothing of this hardwired national conscience we have as, as a people without the Bible. People want to twist and, and obscure passages and take verses out of context, uh, but the Bible is responsible. God's Word available to us, to all and every one of us, the Bible is responsible for steering the world towards the kingdom of God, towards, and, towards on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, you may say, well, the world's, a lot, the world's far off from that. Think about how bad it would be without the Bible having guide, guided and steered and influenced our culture. The Bible has shaped our culture in terms of laws and, and, and ideals ranging from politics to ethnics when it comes to justice and personal responsibility. But aside from the lofty levels of influence, maybe you've never thought about this, but the Bible it, as a piece of literature, of course it's true, but there's some, as, a, as a book it was written to be consumed that way. Um, as a book that one reads and engages with an emotional and mental way, the Bible has inspired much of our modern literature and enter- entertainment. Uh, people often write off the Bible as boring, but that's because they haven't read the Bible. And, and, and maybe you don't realize this, but 90% of all the entertainment we consume is a riff on something biblical. Our fascination with sensational, over-the-top suspense and drama and action has its influence in the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, the way that God describes events that took place or have not yet taken place, where God and His own are depicted in a spectacular way, overcoming evil and accomplishing wonders for good. That sensation that we, we enjoy in pop modern media or even in historical media, that comes from an inspiration of God's Word. Our interest in deep and personal journeys played out in novels and film, they also have their origin in how the Bible tells stories of its heroes. And I mean, come on, of course the Bible is a template for music, way more than just religious music, on a matter of fact, but we've been studying a book, we've been studying a book that has a very unique, has had a very unique impact on the world, and that's the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth. Uh, The story of an unlikely girl longing for more than her family history would allow for, who falls in love and lives happily ever after. I I think we can all agree that we've heard a version of this story a hundred times or so, haven't we? I mean, theme parks and entertainment empires have been built on the back of this kind of story. Ruth, the first of its kind. But we've learned that Ruth is more than just a fairy tale even though it may have inspired a lot of fairy tales in our world. Ruth's story isn't just a story of an unassuming girl who dreams of a man sweeping her off her feet, even though that happens. Yeah, that's what is easily gleaned off the surface, but we've been digging deeper and we found that there's something amazing in this little book. In fact, the little book uh, is, is really like a miniature version of the whole Bible of the whole book. It's the story of a twisted and demented world breaking everyone and everything it can, leaving people hopeless and fearful. It's the story of a people group who had it all and squandered it, and another who never had anything and dreamed of something better. It's the story of these two nations bracing for the worst and the rest of the world having accepted the worst. However, a girl named Ruth begins seeking and believing that there is a God who can change everything. It's because of Ruth's response to what she heard, because of her faith in the God she had dreamed about. She told, she's told there's no place for her in the story, but she does not accept that answer. On the same token, no answer is ever given why Israel does not suffer a Sodom-like judgment for its antics and judges, which were arguably far worse. But we can deduce that Ruth was the reason that God postponed or called off judgment. Ruth was the reason because God had a plan. He had a redemption plan, plan Ruth. God's loyal love would be expressed and demonstrated in redeeming Ruth and her story would change history. I mean, if it's really as if 
all, it's really as if all of history is folding in Ruth's direction and around this story. Especially in hindsight, so many things begin sparking and clicking in, at her step towards God. We've read about her entrance into the land. We've read about her survival in the land, really more than survival, her prosperity. We talked about that last week. Because of a man's field, she happens to turn into, coincidentally, we think not. But more importantly, because of a man's heart, which happens to turn towards her. Because of the laws of the land, Ruth had her deceased husband's estate promised to her if she found someone to marry, if she chose to marry, and found someone to marry in his extended family. The man's field she happened to be working in, of course, fit this category. So she approaches Boaz about their relationship and what it might mean for the both of them. From there, the rest of Ruth is all about a quest for rest. A quest for rest. I want you to look down at your Bibles. I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 3 and then verse 18 of chapter 3. And I want you to notice the symmetry here. Uh, most of your Bibles may have the same word used. One of, uh, your Bible may have a different word, but it means the same. Um, Ruth chapter 3, verse number 1. Uh, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? that it may be well with you. So underline that word security. Your Bible may say rest. It's the same word, security, rest. Shall I not seek security or rest for you, that it may be well with you? And then look at verse 18. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So we have these two similar verses that deal with a single subject. 3.1, Naomi is determined to find rest for Ruth. She says, I am going to find rest for you. It's my heart's desire. I am going to find a way for you to be who you are meant to be and can be in this story. And then at the end of that chapter, Boaz, who we've been introduced to, is determined to provide this rest for Ruth. So I want to talk about this rest, though, for a minute. Just what is this rest they're referring to that we are all searching for? No, I think it's clear, but I want to make it clear. Rest in the Bible is a, speaks of a sense of belonging, being included, inclusion, wholeness, security, placement in the story. This rest refers to the fact that Ruth, a Moabite, remember that? She is a Moabite would never find her place in Israel's story without finding her Redeemer. There is no place for Ruth in this story if she does not marry Boaz. Now, Ruth didn't have to be part of the story, but the Old Testament's message to us is that unless you were in Israel's story, you weren't in the story. The work God was doing in the Old Testament ultimately is about bringing the whole world into the story through a better solution than what was available to Ruth. But what we have to deal with right here, right now, at this point in history, at this point in the Bible, Ruth is not in the story unless she's in Israel's story. And she doesn't get in Israel's story unless she marries Boaz. So there's still this exclusive nature even to this day. Unless we're in God's story, unless we're in God's family, we miss out. Not only just some things, but everything. Ruth's only way in just, it just so happened to be through the man she was falling in love with, which is a great way for it to kind of tie together. So it wouldn't be through some forced, begrudged, arranged marriage. Don't worry about that. This was something Ruth wanted to do. No, another thing. 
I want to make sure we communicate clearly. It's not that Ruth wouldn't obtain all of her inheritance or activate all of her true potential if she didn't find rest through Boaz. See, I think we often talk about Christianity as this taking us to the next level. As in, we're okay where we're at, but, you know, Jesus can take you something to another level, to a better level. But, you know, if you don't get there, it's okay. You'll be okay. But, you know, you want to take it to the next level, don't you? So come on in. We often communicate Christianity in a, in a very wrong way. The point of this story is that Ruth would not have any inheritance and would not realize any of her potential unless and until she found rest. As in, it was dire to go the alternative way. Do you see the difference? This isn't about Ruth moving up from Archie's neighborhood to the Jefferson suite. I mean, she'd be okay down there, but she'd love it up there. This isn't about that kind of a move. This is a move from death to life. This marriage wouldn't just make her better, it would make her belong. So that raises the stakes, doesn't it? That makes it a little more serious, doesn't it? See, that's the difference between moralism and Christianity, moralism and the gospel. One's about addition, the other's about inclusion. One's about marginal improvement, the other's about resurrection. One's about entry, the other's about enough. So may it be known that finding rest is biblical language for finding life. Not better life, but life in general, which of course is better. It's bigger than just, well, what we obsess over as Americans, which is how to achieve, reach, rise, be full, and abundant, and blessed. Uh, you know, th those things are there, and they're given. But we, when we think about faith, it's because we have it better as a people, we don't realize how dire the contrast is. Of course, those things are implied. But finding rest means finding true life, meaning, and purpose. Because all other ground, say that with me, all other ground, as in every other place you could ever rest your weight, whether it looks sinful or whether it looks religious, all other ground is sinking sand. Because you can't rest when you're sinking constantly, can you? No. When we're overwhelmed by being excluded and being empty, we have no rest. We feel as if we're always slipping. This is happening whether we're aware of God or not, but upon accountability, we're even more pressed with the contrast. Now, let me make it clear, just because, just because someone was Jewish in Ruth's day didn't make them have this rest. Judges does not tell a story of people at rest. It tells of people uh, that were full of unrest, trying to find life in all the wrong places. Likewise... Our stories tell how we try so many things and try so much to fill these voids with the wrong things, doesn't it? I mean, isn't our story, isn't especially our 21st century selves, our stories are the stories of trying to find rest, suspending ourselves before so much that does not fill the void. Think about the industries that take in all of our money and all of our mental space in our worlds that every one of us ha are, are hooked to and that have their hooks in us. Our social lives, in person, online, politics, entertainment, sex, consumption, these things control our lives. You know why? Because we are desperate for rest. And we're addicted to all the wrong things, thinking we're going to find it in these things. And these are God-given, God-instituted things in some ways. Yet they don't give us the rest we are desperate for.
That's the contrast in the promised land conquest and what God was trying to show the people. He told them, as soon as you get there, you're going to turn to so many other things besides me to find rest in. Please don't forget that you're only going to find it in me. Rest also. Rest from God and in God. Rest from and in God speaks from resting from our own labor. Our own quest to prove ourselves and provide for ourselves. Something that we're trying to check a box with. So it's about coming to a place where we can be certain that God is enough. The void, imperfections, the gaps we feel and worry about, they find their fill and are made full in and only in God. God tried to teach his people this through his miracles and all the goodness he's shown them, yet they still in their fallen nature in the vacuum of the world were constantly exposed to their flesh and the fears of their flesh and they turned away. And here is an outsider who, nears, who hears about God being gracious. And whereas her God was named the destroyer, she wants to know about this I am who is a good and kind and providing God. Meanwhile, his own people are trying to replace him all the while he's trying to save them. In our text and in our story, Boaz tells Ruth that there's a little bit of a problem in this fairy tale scenario. Boaz tells Ruth that there's someone that is nearer than him that could prevent he and Ruth from getting married. Look down at verse number 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true, though, that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I, and this is the bad news. And this explains something. The reason that we are tempted to turn to so many other things for rest is because those things reflect the source of our unrest, sin. We are a lot closer to sin than we are to salvation, naturally. I don't think that's news, but this just needs to be stated. Sin is our nature and where we find and feel most at home, even though we're miserable there, whether we, want, we don't want to admit this or not, but we are closer related to sin than we are the Savior. Now, Mr. New Testament, Mr. Evangelical, the Apostle Paul, wrote this about himself in Romans. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not even understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate, because he confesses he is of the flesh. He's of sin. So this is what we're fighting against. Well, the point of the story is that we don't have to fight. That like Ruth, we've got someone committed to do that for us. Now, let's read verse 13 through 18. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, so lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet or at the foot of where he had been laying until morning, and she arose before one could recognize her, and then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when, he, when she held it, uh, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So this was sort of like just a, a promise that he would do something more. 
Then he said, we, then she said, we've heard this already, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. The man will not rest. Boaz mentions there may be a problem, but he tells Ruth not to worry about it. Then the next morning, he shows back up and bundles a massive sheaves of grain um, and puts it over her shoulders, balances on her head, and sends her back to her mother-in-law. All of that was meant to be a promise that he would do something much more for her as soon as he was able to work it out. Here we have Boaz making a promise, laying a burden on her head, and then exiting stage right. <laughs> Please hear that clearly. Boaz makes a promise, lays a burden on her shoulders, and then says, I'll see you in a little while. I've got some business to take care of. I can't tell you how excited, excited this scripture makes me. Um, uh, 4,000 words worth of excitement, if I, if I can be honest. I can't tell you how gospel-rich verse 18 is. There are few verses in the Bible that preach the gospel so loudly as verse number 18. Now, chapter 4, 1 through 12 details the extent that Boaz goes to settle the matter. But I can't help but think the writer was grinning ear to ear when they penned the words in verse 18 because something greater than a marriage between Boaz and Ruth was seated and promised in this verse. We've talked, about, talked around this all morning, but in really this whole book, this whole book characterizes and captures God's determination to secure our redemption. Naomi paints the picture of a restless Boaz doing everything he has to do to secure redemption for his love. But if you read the next chapter, Boaz doesn't really have to do that much. He talks to the other guy. The other guy's not romantic. He's a businessman. He says, you know what? I love the lamb, but I don't want to get married. So he says, I'm out. So I can't help but think that chapter 3, verse 18 is a bit overdramatic unless it speaks of something much more than just Boaz and Ruth. And it does. It speaks of a restless redeemer. In this story about finding rest, we're told that the one who can give us rest is working restlessly to do so. You may never hear a description of God again in your life. And I hope the next 10 minutes or so can be cemented into your hearts and minds in terms of just what kind of God who serves, who rules and reigns above us, just what kind of God who is calling you to know him today. Have you ever wanted to do something or get something done and you were restless about whatever you had to do to get it done and you were working on it restlessly? Maybe because you didn't know how to do it. Maybe because you knew, how to, you knew it would require extensive preparation and production. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of scope and scale. Uh, maybe you, were just, you knew you could do it, but it would just be a lot to do. And you really couldn't sit down. You had to just go and work on it because you knew it. there was just so much and you were excited about it. But you were also burdened about it. I want to zoom in and talk about the issue of God and rest and restlessness today. Let it be known that as God observed the world spiraling out of control, he wasn't just passively watching in dismay. He was actively working the whole time. Go back to the beginning. God created everything perfect in peace, everything in harmony with everything. And that's the first time we hear mention of this biblical idea of rest. In Genesis chapter 1, when everything's getting done, God saw everything that was made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were, what's the word? Finished. The heavens and the earth were completed. They were done. They were perfect. And all the host of them. And then we get this jewel. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And what did he do when he finished? He rested. This is so big. He rested not because he had to, not because he was tired, not because he was exhausted. Why did he rest? Because he could. God was not tired. He was satisfied. And this might be the only time I reference modern society in a positive light in terms of being able to teach us something about God. But the original idea behind the fabled American dream was that someone might be able to retire before they get worn out, but you can retire early with plenty of money and plenty of life left. The idea that you could retire because you could, not because you should. Isn't that right? That I can retire not because I should or I have to, but because I can and I'm able to. Now, whether or not that's reality anymore is not the point, but that's a window into God's rest in Genesis 2. He was finished and he sat down to watch the glory rise from his work. Now, we know the next part of the story. It spotlights Adam and Eve in paradise and how God walked with them and the Everything was perfect. God was at rest because his creation was at rest in him. You hear that? God rested because creation was resting. Two different kind of rest, though. God could rest because his creation was complete. Why could he rest? Because it was done. He was satisfied. He was proud. He sat back to watch the glory rise from it. Creation could rest because God was at its center. So they could rest because God was the center. God could rest because his creation was complete. So let's make this more personal. God could rest because his children were at home, and his children could rest because they were with God. But they don't rest for very long, do they? The one thing meant to remind them of unrest, they chose to leave creation, leave their certain rest, and try that. Didn't work out too good, did it? Everything unraveled. And thus the Old Testament begins. Man was shut out of the garden because God is ferociously holy and sin sank and condemned humanity. All of creation crumbled in shame and failure. Creation became undone. The work became unfinished. So what did God do? Yes, mankind was banished. It looked bleak and it looked grim. But what is the story that unfolds from that point forward? The redemption story. God relentlessly, God restlessly went to work to redeem creation, to rescue his children. Do you understand that? That God, from Genesis 4 forward, was restlessly at work to redeem and rescue creation. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He wanted to. And that's the very important to understand. God, completely full, complete without us, no less God without us, but his heart beat for us even though our hearts could not care less for him. The overflow of his nature, power, and glory wanted to create and likewise wanted to redeem. We learn from Ruth too that God's holiness and his kindness are not opposite, but they work together. Two sides of the same coin. 
God's kind because He is holy. Holiness moved away from sin, but kindness moved to move the weight of sin away. Worked to move the weight of sin away. That's the story of the Bible. God navigating these waters, working restlessly to condemn sin, but save sinners. Beginning in Genesis 4, I mean just days into the gift of God, it all breaks. And God goes back to work. And spent ages building up to the moment where all things could and would be made new. Everything from Genesis 4 to Malachi 4 ultimately serves one purpose, to set the stage for redemption. To bring back creation into harmony with its creator. To fix the broken song of creation. To bring that which is denouncing and disowning God back into fellowship with Him. Back to a place of delighting in and honoring Him. And that is the story of Israel. The Jewish ceremonies, the law, the prophets, the kings, the exile. Everything was a patch, a temporary fix. It was just a bundle of barley laid across the shoulders of a young girl. While God said, I'm going to go deal with your nearest of kin. I'm going to fix the problem. This reminds you there is a problem. And it's a promise that I'm going to fix it. That's what the old covenant is all about. That our true burden is that we are under sin. Our greater bondage is that we are unto, we have a bondage unto death. And God worked to prepare a true fix. The Old Testament tells a story and structure religion uh, meant to create the perfect scenario by which kindness and holiness could work together to produce redemption and reconciliation. I mean, you know, this is so awesome. You can never stop marveling at God. Think about all that he has, that all that has to line up perfectly for life to exist. Microscopically at a cellular level, an atomical level, and then macroscopically, the big ideas and systems that all bump into each other. God orchestrated certain zones in the universe that creation would be made possible. God conjoined kingdoms and genealogies so that recreation could happen. God worked and he rested when it was all made. And then he worked restlessly until it was remade. Just think how the Bible frames this. There are two chapters, really just one, but two chapters where God creates. And we don't even get the background of how detailed that was. And then there are hundreds of pages of God working to redeem the creation that said no to him. Of course, I'm not saying that one was harder for God. I'm just saying this is how detailed his redemptive work is for us. So when Naomi says to Ruth, he will not rest until the matter is settled... Do you understand how heavy that is? How big that is? Genesis 4 to Malachi 4 is restless proof of this. He is not going to rest until he fixes this mess. Did he have to? No. Did somebody make him? No. Of course, that's, there's more pages to the story, isn't there? And more than just pages, there's pain and there's blood and there's death at the end of the story. God worked restlessly. Isaiah 63 says that this is God talking. I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me because God you know, claims us and it was his own name on the line. So my own arm brought me salvation. So clothed, wrapped, adorned, Jesus Christ enters the universe, enters creation. 
We deserve judgment, but God had mercy. God desired better, but we had sin. So what does God do? Jesus shows up. Holiness with hands. Kindness from the cosmos. God in flesh becomes God on a cross. Blamed, banished, beaten, broken, bloody, and buried. That's how restless in pursuit God was to redeem you. This is how restless his love for us, that Jesus would become wretched in our sin, wrecked by God's wrath. Why? Because he was not going to rest until he settled the matter. On the cross, he interceded for the people that crucified him, not just those gnashing their teeth on the hill, but all of us responsible for that moment. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, but we know, we know exactly what we're doing, don't we? But Jesus knew what he was doing as well. Naomi, let me confirm your suggestion and inference that he wouldn't rest until it was finished. Jesus on the cross, living and dying proof that he was not going to rest until it was done. So after three hours of suffering, not from the cross, but from God's own wrath, the punishment to our sin. What are the words from Jesus before he dies? It is finished. What's finished? The work, the job, creation. It was finished in Genesis 2, but it became unfinished, and then I showed up, and I finished it. It's done. I want you to hear how the writer of Hebrews sums up this restless work of God. If you want to look in your Bibles, it's Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to see it with your eyes. If you don't look at it now, please look at it later. Hebrews 1. This is how Hebrews sums up the whole redemption story. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, the Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom all things were made, who be in the brightness of His glory and express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had made Himself purged for our sin, when He Himself purged our sin, what does the next two words say? He sat down. Why did He sit down? Not because He had to, but because He could. Because what's the dream? You sit down because the job's done. So why did Jesus sit down? Because it was finished. And it's even, it gets even better. Ruth 4, look down at verse 7. It's a really strange custom that takes place, but it's so powerful. Ruth, Ruth 4, verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel. This is Ruth meeting with the other guy. Concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative of Ruth said, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and he gave it to Boaz. The serpent had been bruising heels since Eden. The serpent had been biting and poisoning and killing. But what did Jesus say he would do? He would bruise his head. And in this moment, the enemy takes off his shoe and gives it to Boaz. 
The, the enemy had to hand over the keys to life and death. He handed over the keys to eternity and he said, I have no power over your bride anymore. Does that register with you? He took off his boot and he said, it's yours. Jesus took the boot of death away. It could not sting. It could not stomp. God promised this would be the way. I shall ransom them from the grave. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, grave, where is your sting? I mean, is that not awesome? At the end of our story, Ruth and Boaz are married. Boaz takes Ruth. She becomes his wife. They love each other. They have a child. Of course, that child would go on to have another child. And of course, that child would go on to be the father of David. Now, let me make this very clear as we close. Their marriage is a picture of Christ's marriage to his church. Isn't that true? But again, David, of course, another picture. David would slay Goliath as Jesus slayed our sin and he slayed death. We're not David. Jesus was David. We're in the background benefiting from it. We're not Boaz. We're Ruth. We're in Ruth. We're the church. Before we close, I want to say something about the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth that I think I've made pretty clear, but I want to be sure we've communicated this as clearly as possible because this is the gospel we're talking about. And my job is to preach the gospel, so i got to get this right. This is not a story about Ruth finding her completion in Boaz. Ruth found her completion in God. Her marriage to Boaz is a symbol of both Jew and Gentile finding their completion in Christ, a pathway for us all to come to God without all of the rigmarole that she had to take and go through. This is not a fairy tale about finding completion and wholeness and rest in somebody or even yourself or, God forbid, this world. Listen, if you don't already know this and you just are trying to block it out, this world, this world will take from, hurt, and woefully disappoint you. As much as it may give, it will take more. It's your nearest to kin, after all. It doesn't want to lose you. It wants to deceive you and it wants to kill you. And it will tempt you while it will trap you. So don't put your faith in people. Not even loved ones to save you. Now don't mishear me. I know this will not be down in the cool preacher points, but I'm already pretty low. So, This is not a story about Ruth finding herself in a man. There's no Ruth out there that will save you men. And there's no Boaz out there that will save you ladies. There's only Jesus. Men and women, we make lousy saviors. We're incapable of saving people. And the kind of expectations that we put on people, when we expect them to save us, they can't handle it. It crushes them. And isn't this the case for a lot of us? We look to someone that we shouldn't look to to save us. How's that working out? Listen, I love Lindsay. I would die for her. I would go to jail for her. I would do whatever I had to do to love and honor and commit to her with my entire life. She means everything to me. 
the greatest gift in this flesh I'll ever get. But she can't save me. And I can't save her. And putting that kind of pressure on her would destroy her. Husbands, love your wives. Fiercely die for them if you have to. Wives, love your husbands. Look at them as if your whole world is in them. But don't put weight on them. They can't handle. The answer isn't in ourselves either. You will not be able to fix you. A better version of you is not going to satisfy you. Ultimately, the greatest humans will never complete you. Yourself, your spouse, anybody. This book reminds us that we need a Savior. And we have a Savior. His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus was restless in pursuit of you. He took nails and thorns and death and hell to save you. He crushed the enemy and he says you find your rest in me. Hebrews 4, 9 says, There remains a rest for the people of God, and His name is Jesus. Ruth was told to wait, but we don't got to wait. We don't. Husbands, put, take your wife in your hand. Wives, take your husband in your hand. Families, put your, gather each other in your arms. And as a family, as a people, all of us as a church, we come to one Savior. His name is Jesus. Boaz told Ruth, it's all on me. Just trust me. And he took care of it, didn't he? Jesus is our rest. We can rest from our own work, rest from pursuing and toying from any other forms. The question is, are we resting in Jesus for our salvation? To be whole, complete, fulfilled, and alive, there is no other way, there is no other rest. You know the thing about fairy tales? They rarely happen in real life. But guess what? Jesus is here today in in the spirit. He sits on a throne in heaven in the flesh. And he says, this is not a fairy tale. It's real. Come to me. Trust in me. Put your weight on me. Love me with all your heart. I've done this for you. I was restless to pursue you. And I found you. Would you come to me? Would you come to me? I don't know. I don't care if you've been saved all your life. We need to find rest in Jesus, don't we? And we need to let go of the stuff that we've been playing with and toying with and deceiving ourselves with. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. But I cannot say that with any, with any of the, the weight that you say it to me. Father, thank you for this gospel that you've preached to us today. Thank you for making this commitment to us. I will not rest until I fix this matter. Lord, you have not rested until you fix this matter. You went to the cross and bled out for us to fix this matter. And you sit on the throne of God today, claiming, proclaiming to all of the earth, Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. The world cannot fulfill us. People cannot fulfill us, but you can. 
So Lord, let people throw away the things that they're trusting in, whether it's a bottle or a substance or a person or an idea or a politician or whatever it is. Let them throw those things aside and let them come to you and find rest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.